This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Welcome to Thanksgiving week 2021, where several major stories converging, all of which could impact all of us. First, COVID infection and hospitalization rates are once again on the rise, including in several areas with high vaccination rates. Are we in store for another miserable COVID winter? Then, if you're hitting the road or taking to the skies, it's going to be busy. We have some recommendations to make your trip a little less frustrating. And for those of you who are driving, brace yourself. Well, yeah, you know it. Gas prices showing no signs of coming down. And it could get even worse in the new year. Thanksgiving around here could involve strong winds, high fire danger, rolling power blackouts. So we'll head to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where at the start of 2022, feminine hygiene products like tampons must be available in all public restrooms and they need to be free. And then there have been more sightings of the missing Chinese tennis star. She appeared in a video interview today, but it's not enough for a lot of human rights activists to be sure that she's actually safe. So let's get this uh, straight about uh, Thanksgiving. So we've got, let's see, COVID on the rise in some parts of the country. We've got uh, potential high winds. We've got potential rolling blackouts. Sounds like fun. Yeah, and then there's their family members. Yeah, wow. (laughs) That's what you really have to look out for. Trust me. We start with COVID on the march again, just in time for the holidays. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, professor of epidemiology and community health sciences at UCLA. Previously, he served as director of the Division of Communicable Disease Control and Prevention at the L.A. County Public Health Department. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Mike, Charles, it's good to be back with you. So uh, COVID cases in many parts of the country, uh, and not just cases, not just people apparently testing positive, but people going into the hospital and people who are getting sick, and they're not all, although mostly, but not all unvaccinated, right? That's correct. But uh, again, the vast majority are, in fact, unvaccinated. There's about six times higher number of cases in the unvaccinated compared to fully vaccinated and 12 times higher deaths in the unvaccinated versus fully vaccinated. And is that just basically what is going to happen? This is going to move around in the communities that don't have their shots, and it's just probably going to get worse over the winter as we're inside, or people are coming together to celebrate. And unfortunately, it it kind of is what it is unless you do get your shot. And if you have yours, um, get your booster, right? That's exactly right. Those are very good, uh, important points that you're bringing up. I think that this is really a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this stage. And people should recognize if you are unvaccinated, this virus will find you. Is it is it just, though, a pandemic of the unvaccinated or increasingly are we seeing it being a a kind of maybe sub pandemic of the unboosted? Well, the vaccines do have breakthrough. That is correct, especially with this Delta variant. But fortunately, it is breakthrough with some infections but not to usually serious disease or death. So I think that's the important take home message for people, again, if they're wavering about getting vaccinated uh, and they're hearing, well, there's breakthrough infections. Yes, you may have breakthrough infections, but you will be either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. It won't be this life-threatening illness that we see people hospitalized in ICUs and ultimately even dying from disease. What are you looking forward to once we get past, you know, the winter? Is it when we hope these pills will be approved? Because then it becomes a matter of even if you break through or, you know, you get a bad case of this and if you test early enough and if these pills work, you can get to your doctor, you can get one of these. And is that really our way out of all of this with vaccines plus the treatment? 
Well, I am really encouraged about some of these medical breakthroughs that are being done. I think the biggest medical breakthrough has been vaccine, though. I mean, we've got a highly effective uh, set of vaccines. That's what the take-home message needs to be for everyone, to, that vaccine works, get vaccinated. But having said that, I am very encouraged and optimistic about some of these other medications, antiviral medications that have, again, greater than 80% uh, protective value. So these will be very important uh, tools in our tool chest to help those people who have come down with disease to make sure that they don't uh, get severe disease and die as well. So it's just another tool that we have that's very encouraging. So are you doing things this Thanksgiving that you didn't dare do last Thanksgiving? Well, we are having, for example, our family over uh, for a small, you know, gathering. So, you know, and they're all vaccinated, uh, including the children. So that's uh, something that's different, again, about this year. So I think that for people who are fully vaccinated, uh, with all their family members vaccinated, this is a time when they can do something uh, differently than they did last year. But again, for those who are not vaccinated, this time is uh, particularly worrisome again, where we can see upticks in numbers of cases as the cooler weather comes, people are indoors, people are traveling more now and going and visiting uh, to family and friends. You know, this will probably result in some increase in numbers of cases. I am optimistic that it'll be a modest increase as compared to what I call the viral tsunami of the back-to-back -back vacations uh, and holidays we had last year. But it's something to be uh, concerned about because there's still many people who are unvaccinated. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, professor of epidemiology and community health sciences at UCLA. Well, if you are planning on traveling for Thanksgiving, <laughs> you're either really brave or some people might argue really stupid. We have some advice to make the experience slightly, just slightly, that's the emphasis, less frustrating. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Jerome Powell looks to be keeping his job as chairman of the Federal Reserve. What does it mean to your money? Uh, before that, if you're looking to add a new level of uncertainty and excitement to Thanksgiving, how about the power going out because of rolling blackouts? <laughs> right now, though, if you're brave or foolish enough to be heading out on the road or to the skies for this Thanksgiving, you will be joined by millions of Americans eager to get back to family and friends for the holidays, and you will be relying on a very severely overtaxed and also understaffed transportation system. Joe Brancatelli, business travel and airline industry analyst, founder and editor of the business traveler advisory site, joesentme.com. Joe, welcome back. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'll be going nowhere for the Thanksgiving holiday. Smart guy. Smart. smart, smart man. See, 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 everybody. You got to listen to the experts. If Joe, the is travel saying, guy, is right, staying if the, home. If the travel guy is not going anywhere, guys, don't just stay home. But, but if they do decide to venture out, Joe, uh, let's take it a, a couple of things at a time. Some airlines we have been noticing, can't help but, are in the news a lot with delays and, and uh, you know, screw-ups all over the map. Are there certain airlines that, if you can, perhaps you want to maybe give your business elsewhere? Well, it's, let me say it, maybe come at it this way, Charles. If you're still thinking about who to fly this weekend, don't fly. Uh, <laughs> so don't worry about having a choice. But in in seriousness, you've booked a flight probably now, and it's on American or United or Delta or Frontier or Southwest, who knows. And I would say it's an equal chance of being screwed by any of them. 
because Charles, as a pilot especially, you know how the world works. You can't fly a plane without pilots. Airlines, especially during the holidays, and especially this holiday, literally schedule flights they know they cannot fly. And they hope that pilots and flight attendants and various other people they need to make the system go will pick up extra flights because they're offering a bonus or because they're bored on the day before Thanksgiving. You know, for years this has been happening, and the airlines have gotten away with it, but people now remember we gave them about $80 billion to make sure they would have enough staff. Now they don't, so that whenever this happens, and my guess is it'll happen to one airline or another in the next week, um, we notice because we paid them not to do it, and yet they do it this way. So if I happen to be on the roulette wheel and it's my flight or my airline that isn't going, what do I do to try and get to my place, you know, within some kind of time window that's not like Saturday morning? Right. And and Mike, you hit on the key point of why this holiday is different than any others with all due respect to Passover. Um, Thanksgiving <laughs> is the one time of year that A, everybody celebrates. It is a secular holiday. And B, everyone must be at table on Thursday. Nobody celebrates Thanksgiving on Wednesday or Friday. So the system is being asked to deliver people on Thursday. That's why we part of the other reason why we have problems. What can you do if your number comes up on the roulette wheel? Start before it comes up. Carry on if you can. Your, your life is much easier if you don't have to worry about your checked baggage, too. Have a plan. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I was going to say, what What about, I know I've had some issues in the past few years with airlines, and what I found to be very effective more than, than going to the gate person who normally kind of looks at you like a deer caught in, in you know, headlights and like, oh, what do you want me to do about it? Uh, I found that, that mounting a, a Twitter campaign against the airline has proven to be very effective, at least for me. You, you need to use every channel available to you. Twitter, make sure you've downloaded all the apps, not just from the airlines, but from the airports. Um, Social media beyond Twitter, um, calling if you can, going to the gate if you can. But the most important thing, Charles, have a flight plan. Have a plan B. If you're trying to get to Des Moines for Thanksgiving and you're booked on some flight connecting somewhere to Des Moines, Make sure you know the other flights that connect to Des Moines from LAX or perhaps Burbank, where you're flying from. Don't rely on the person you're looking to help for to try and figure it out. Say, here are the five flights I know that are going. What can you do for me? That really does help if you have your own answers. I know they should have the answers, but have your own answers. It's better that way. Joe Brancatelli, business, travel, and airline industry analyst, founder and editor of JoeSentMe.com, and he's not going anywhere. For this. Okay, and let's say some of you have decided after listening to, to Joe, you know what, I'm not going to fly anywhere. I'm just going to go by car. That's right. Yeah, here's a problem with that. It's going to cost you an arm and a leg when we come back. <laughs> Uh, 
KNX In-Depth, Charles Feldman and Mike Simpson. Later on, there are pictures and videos and now even a video call with IOC officials with missing Chinese tennis star Peng Shui, all of which are not enough to convince human rights activists that she's safe. And before we get to that, we'll get to this, the Michigan town of Ann Harbor, taking a huge step for women in the new year, and we will explain that one. Right now, we are set for a record high autumn gas price uh, back in late October. That's when we set the record. And since then, prices have only gone higher. This is in spite of wholesale oil prices starting to gradually come down. Uh, so why are we continuing to pay through the nose at the pump? Tom Closa, Global Head of Energy Analysis at the Oil Price Information Service. Uh, Tom, thanks for being here. So why are we continuing to pay through the nose? Because California moves very, very slowly. And uh, I have a hunch that you're going to wobble lower for the next 60 or 75 days, but you're gonna wobble to a new launch pad for 2022, because that's gonna be the problematic year uh, for the country to a great extent, but for California, it's already started. You are probably guilty or the industry is guilty of over-rationalizing refining assets that they thought were gonna be uh, stranded in the next few years. So combination of expensive crude, expensive ethanol, higher wages, not as many uh, convenience stores, higher freights. Uh, you'll see a little bit of a break, but don't get used to it because you're going to have another surge basically in the February to May period. But you know, a lot of people here in California, politicians included, think that we're kind of being played perhaps by the industry, are we? Well, I don't know if you're being played. I mean, if you look at the regulations, it's pretty clear that there's an adversarial relationship between the government and people who want clean air and the oil companies. So it's clear that unless uh, refiners can really spend a lot of money and decarbonize their refineries, uh, they've got to get out of town. So I, I think, you know, it's it's kind of, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you wanna get rid of carbon and you wanna clean up the air and clean up the environment, there is a price attached to it. And California has expensive real estate, has expensive assets. It's a long way to bring product from Korea or Singapore or whatever. So these are the consequences you're gonna to have to deal with uh, in what is gonna be a wild 2022. When it comes to, you know, prices, there's all these different uh, opinions or takes or analysis of what happens. Is the only thing that actually brings it down is people driving less because it's just tied to demand at the end of the day. Everybody wants gas right now, so they're going to charge us for it. And then if nobody's driving, they'll lower the price a little bit. Yeah, that'll drive it down. Cheaper crude oil prices would drive it down because refiners will uh, be able to make some money. Uh, remember, we, we closed a couple of refineries in Northern California last year or during COVID, and there's consequences with that. Now, here's some good news. Later in 2022 and 2023, there's quite a bit more global refining capacity that comes online, Southeast Asia, uh, again, Korea, probably the Middle East, and they'll probably start sending some of their gasoline to the West Coast. But between, let's say, the dead of winter and, uh, you know, the last third of 2022, you guys got a problem. Just not enough refineries there, people driving probably closer to 2019 levels, but not quite there. 
And so you'll pay a lot. I, I mean, look, it is not as competitive of a market in California as it is in most other states. That's because you have fewer refineries, but you have fewer convenience stores or places. So you can save money if you want to devote your time to waiting at the Costco, or you can go to the local major brand <laughs> and, and take more. You said a couple of times, I think, that it's going to be a wild 2022. And, you know, it was a pretty <laughs> wild 2020 and 2021. How wild are we talking about here? Well, I, I think, you know, and I'm hoping for this, not because I want to see higher prices, but I think we're all hoping for the fact that COVID is not going to be in the background in spring and summer of 2022. If it is, it changes everything. But without it, people start driving close to 2019 levels, and we just don't have the refining production here. We don't have the, the drivers to move it from the refineries to the terminals or from the terminals to the stations. And again, there's a gap between when a lot of this global refining comes back on in 2022 and 2023, where the West Coast is kind of on its lonesome. That's going to be true in the Pacific Northwest as long as the West Coast. And if you look at numbers last year, it was probably the most year ever. Uh, but the highest prices were in the Western geography, whether it's Pacific time or Rocky Mountain time. Unfortunately, I think that's in your future next year as well. Tom Closa, Global Head of Energy Analysis, the Oil Price Information Service. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Thanksgiving in Southern California, sunny and 80 degrees. Ah, yes. But, but also winds uh, and high fire danger. So that's what we expect as we go from Wednesday all the way into Friday. And because of some of that, uh, we could be dealing with preemptive rolling blackouts. Yeah, Thanksgiving in paradise, huh? Southern California Edison, which already had to cut off power to a little under... 4,000 customers over the weekend during this last Santa Ana wind event is now warning people that power cuts to reduce the risk of fire ignition could be a possibility for Thanksgiving. Loretta Lynch is a regulatory attorney and former president of the California Public Utilities Commission. Welcome back, uh, Loretta. So uh, I, I was saying to Mike before, the good news is uh, the turkey will be out of the oven, but we may not be able to see it. So... I, I thought last year, or maybe it was the year before, Governor Newsom said that this was outrageous and that power companies in 2020, or now 2021, California, shouldn't be doing rolling blackouts. Uh, whatever happened to that? Hey, Charles. Thanks for having me. Uh, whatever happened to that? It sounds like a lot of talk. The problem here is these power shutoffs do not need to happen. The problem is the PUC, our state regulator, should have required Southern California Edison to maintain its system properly, and they didn't. This isn't just about weather. These shutoffs are not happening with LADWP or Santa Ana or Pasadena. All of those are local and publicly owned electricity systems, and they maintain their wires. The problem here is the PUC has let Edison off the hook, and we are all going to pay for that. So how do we get them back on the hook? Because to Charles's point, I mean, it's now been years and years and years that people have been saying, and the companies have been saying, you know, we're going to do more and we're going to clean up the areas around the lines and, and it's a work in progress and we're getting there. Well, how long until we actually get there, if ever? Well, once again, it's a failure of the regulator. 
the PUC has rubber stamped Edison's wildfire plans and all the private utilities wildfire plans without first making sure that they work or that they're cost effective. And we see the results. The utilities to this day have still failed to repair and maintain their systems properly. But you know, your listeners have a chance to weigh in on changing the PUC's lapdog approach. And that's because the governor is going, to is going to appoint a new PUC president by the end of this year. So they can call the governor's office and their state senator's office because their state senators are going to need to confirm this person and tell them that the new PUC president needs to be a bulldog, not a lapdog. and needs to hold the private utilities accountable finally for their wildfire plans and make sure that they work based on fact and not based on utility influence. So let's say you have 10 guests over, uh, all, of course, fully vaccinated for Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, just as you're about to cut into the bird, the lights go off. There's no power. You can't do anything. Uh, is there anything that the individual uh, can do uh, in terms of, I don't know, can you get money back? Can you? What can you do? At this point, the PUC is not making the utilities pay real families and real businesses who have real problems from these utility shutoffs. They are not holding the utilities to account. So yes, they, people should call the governor's office and their state senator's office and say, we want to be paid back. But frankly, we shouldn't be put in that position to begin with because we all know how big of a problem it is now because we've all felt it. So ultimately, you got to change the system to change the problems that we're all going to be subject to come Thursday. Who decides on the levels for when the shutoffs happen? Because, look, super high winds, very, very dry. A lot of us can understand that. We don't want fires. Um, but I think up north, PG&E's been taking heat because they've actually, like, taken them wider or lowered the bar, however you want to phrase it. And people are saying, well, this doesn't warrant doing what you're doing, and, and it's happening anyway. Well, that's the problem. The PUC is letting the utilities decide in the first instance whether they need to shut off without making a showing to the PUC that they actually need to. So between the PUC allowing the utilities essentially to regulate themselves and approving wildfire safety plans that don't make the system safe, we've got a real problem. And that is what has to change because the PUC is allowing these private utility companies to prioritize replacing power poles which have never been shown to cause a fire, instead of physically inspecting each and every transmission line, like the public utilities do. And so until we inspect the lines and make sure they're safe, we are always going to be subject to the utilities covering their you-know-whats and shutting us off preemptively. Loretta Lynch, regulatory attorney, former president of the California Public Utilities Commission. Coming up, the city of Ann Harbor, Michigan, about to make life a lot more comfortable for women. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, the city of Ann Arbor, Arbor, Michigan, is about to take a major step when it comes to quality of life. Uh, with us is Christopher Taylor, who is the mayor of Ann Arbor. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for being with us. So as I understand it, uh, the step that's being taken is that uh, going forward, all public restrooms in your city are going to have to have, what, free tampons for women and free soap and toilet paper for everybody else? Uh, well, it's uh, uh, first off, thank you so much for having me. And second, it's, even, it's a little bit more than that. We uh, passed an ordinance which uh, will require that all public restrooms have a standard set of sanitation products. Uh, that is to say soap, paper towels, uh, toilet paper, of course, 
and tampons and pads. It is uh, it is without regard to uh, to gender label on the on the bathroom because you know as we know uh, you know menstruating people use all restrooms. The soap and toilet paper I would have hoped was there anyways because it is a restroom, <laughs> right? Um, but talk to me about the rest of it. How did this get started? Yeah, well, you know, it actually came. Uh, you know, I was the 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 main uh, the main sponsor of the uh, of the ordinance, and the uh, the idea sort of started when a high school student came to me a, a little bit ago, and she uh, expressed her concern that uh, that homeless folks uh, had difficulty obtaining menstrual products, and that kind of put a bug in my ear. And then over the course of the next couple, I uh, came to realize that uh, you know school districts throughout various states uh, provide uh, menstrual products. Uh, there have been municipal uh, municipal initiatives for city buildings and the like to provide menstrual products. And so, you know, I got to thinking and asked our staff whether or not this was something that we could uh, obligate through all public restrooms. And it turns out that we can, and I'm just delighted that we did. So this is not just restrooms in municipal buildings. It would uh, impact, for example, restaurants, any store that has restroom facilities. Is that right? That is exactly right. Uh, it is uh, keyed off of the plumbing code. So if the plumbing plumbing code obligates that you have a public restroom, and there are you know all over the city, then that restroom by ordinance will have this standard set of sanitation products. But to Mike's point before, I, I would have presumed that didn't the code require at least soap and, and toilet paper to be available in all these facilities? Uh, I don't know that that's a requirement. Uh, going forward, it uh, it certainly will be. Uh, you know, we um, uh, we are we think that this is uh, uh, a you know important step forward in terms of uh, in terms of equity and availability, and I'm just delighted that we were able to do it. The stores and restaurants have said what? Yeah, well, you know, of course, you know, before rolling out like this, I did some diligence and so talked to the uh, the local library district, the uh, the bus authority, uh, the school district, the university, and the downtown development authority and various merchant associations throughout. And you know, by and large, uh, you know, received nothing but positives. There was occasional concerns uh, with respect to uh, some supply, but for the most part, and on the for the overwhelming part, people are are excited about this step forward. Is there a financial burden on businesses? Uh, just like you know, uh, just like presently, um, most businesses will provide toilet paper and uh, and paper towels in the restroom. There will be a uh, an additional cost for the provision of tampons and pants. From what you've heard, what is this going to do for people? You mentioned, you know, some people just don't have access, right? Uh, but past that, is it like a peace of mind kind of thing? Because this is the last thing you want to be worried about. And, you know, now you could just go to the restroom and there it is, everything you need. I think that's exactly right. It will, of course, have, uh, it will, of course, have equity uh, benefits for folks who, you know, who don't have established residences, for whom uh, the purchase is difficult, period poverty, we know, of course, to be um, an, uh, an important uh, concern in, our, in, in, in all communities. Um, but in addition to, you know, uh, people who menstruate uh, don't, always, uh, don't always know when they're going to do it, where they're going to do it. And so it's important that these supplies be available. And with this ordinance in Ann Arbor, they will be. Yeah, I think you said that it was mostly positive or almost all positive. What were some of the negative points that people brought out? Uh, you know, the uh, the the only negative is a you know a, a concern, a, an occasionally expressed concern about pilfering. Um, and that is uh, something you know we provide all sorts of uh, free supplies in restrooms. Now we pro provide uh, paper towel, we provide toilet paper, um, and so you know some folks expressed a concern that there would be theft associated and by extension and a higher cost. 
you know, I, I recognize that concern, but also, you know, I'd say that with the uh, with the adoption of the ordinance and the free uh, and the free and widespread availability of the products, I'd expect that to be uh, a, a minor short-lived concern. Lots being made of you guys being the first to do this, and and why do you think that is? That's an excellent question, and I'm uh, and I don't know the answer to that. It seems like uh, a a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Uh, you know, it's a uh, well. You know, people menstruate, right? And you know, it is important uh, that we as a society understand that, engage it, and uh, the, the availability of menstrual products is a fundamental human necessity. Uh, I'm confident that with this initiative uh, passed and with uh, the positive, uh, positive response that we've received here and you know uh, throughout the country. Um, you know, I expect that uh, other uh, other jurisdictions will do this as well, and I couldn't be more delighted. When does this all go into effect? Uh, this rolls into effect January 1, 2022. To your last point before, do you think some lawmakers or just people that would think about trying to push something like this through, is they're still skittish about it for, for some reason? Or what is it? Because like what you said, this is like, this is what humans do, you know? <laughs> it's how yeah, it happens. It's- that, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, obviously, um, well, you know, uh, I, well, you know, we don't we, we've never required men to carry around toilet paper. Uh, and, you know, my guess is over the course of history that if, you know, men menstruated, then we would have had these laws a long time ago. Uh, uh, right now, uh, right now is a time for us to to take steps. You see states and cities all over the country uh, moving to eliminate the, uh, the pink tax. And that's, I think, uh, an important step forward. Uh, now it's time, I think, for uh, for folks to understand jurisdictions, whether a city, a state, or a county, uh, that these are products that ought to be available for everyone. And this is a, uh, a legal and efficient uh, way to meet that public need. And you do think it'll filter up to other jurisdictions? Uh, it's certainly my hope so. Uh, you know, we uh, have received in the city uh, a lot of positive feedback, a lot of uh, um, you know attention. Of course, it's not too often you have a midwestern mayor showing up on your radio show, uh, but it is uh, it's the sort of thing I think that that folks can 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 get behind, can get enthusiastic about. It speaks to a human need. Folks understand that. Uh, you know, you know, you hear so many experiences of people. Um, well, either you experience it yourself, certainly, um, or you hear experiences uh, from folks who uh, who have been without menstrual products when they need them, uh, and spoken to the uh, the comfort that it would be to know that those products are going to be available for them in the restroom wherever they are. Christopher Taylor, mayor of Ann Arbor. Mayor, thanks for coming on the radio show. Um, we'll be back in just a minute. Another half hour of in depth. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has had the bad luck of having to guide the American economy through the biggest disruption it's experienced in at least a century. And even after that, he's coming back for more. Powell's been officially nominated by the president to keep his job overseeing the Fed. Question is, what does it mean for your financial bottom line? Stephen Leisman, senior economics reporter for CNBC. So, uh, Stephen, the reaction today was, uh, what, first the markets seemed to, to like it and then uh, kept turning. Yeah, they absolutely loved it. And then they hit a brick wall about 3.40 Eastern time and had a second thought about it. Um, I think what we saw first thing in the morning is the bond market 
had an attitude about Powell, and that meant somewhat faster rate hikes. Um, of the two candidates being considered by the president, Fed Governor Lael Brainerd and renominating Powell, Powell was seen as the one more likely to go a little faster in terms of taking back the pandemic emergency assistance. So uh, the bond market read this in a certain way. And then you had the president come out there with uh, Powell and Brainerd. Of course, he appointed Brainerd as the vice chair instead of the chair. Um, and they all talked about inflation. So the idea was, hey, maybe that means Fed policy is going to get a little more serious about battling inflation. The uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party, not too thrilled. No, uh, you had Elizabeth Warren come out and say she's going to oppose Powell. What's interesting here is it's not really about monetary policy or the interest rates. Where the progressive part of the Democratic Party is concerned is that uh, Powell has allowed some reforms to the Dodd-Frank banking regulations, which, as you remember, were put in place after the financial crisis. Um, And he's allowed some of those rules to be eased a bit. And, uh, of course, Brainerd dissented on those decisions. So she's thought to be tougher on the banks, also a little bit more likely to allow the Fed to begin to review banks for the potential climate change risk. This is a tremendously controversial topic, the extent to which the Fed should get involved in this. But Brainerd has indicated more of a willingness to start to look at what would happen to the banking system in the event there were losses related to climate change to the people that they're lending to. Yeah, when it comes to that kind of stuff, how much is the Fed involved in that people don't even realize? Or maybe they just kind of have this like amorphous view of it. Yeah, they're, they're doing something with like uh, top-down approaches, but I, I don't really get into it. Yeah, sometimes that's the way I feel about it, too. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it's a little unclear, and this is sort of history in the making. What is the involvement of a central bank when it comes to climate change? Um, And I'll give you a very simple example, which is you have a bank that you regulate, and let's say all of their loans are, are in a flood zone. Well, how should that risk be evaluated? You could make an argument that the central bank should be involved in in, in assessing that kind of risk if there's going to be more floods or, in your cases out there in the West, more fires. How do we evaluate the banks? But this is unproven ground. We don't know what the answer is going to be. The Europeans have been a little bit more off, quite a bit more aggressive than we have here in the States. But the, the Federal Reserve just joined a group of central banks who are looking into these issues. These are early days, and, of course, it's very controversial politically for the Federal Reserve to get involved in this. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren saying she's going to oppose it. Is there any, in your view, possibility that it could not get through Congress? I, I don't think so. Our, uh, political calculation is uh, second in my expertise to economic calculations. Uh, huh. But what I'm hearing at the moment is that um, uh, there are the votes out there. And that's actually one of the reasons why President Biden probably went with Powell. There are more Republican votes out there for Powell. Um, There are a whole bunch of Democratic votes out there for him. A few Democratic senators did step forward even before the nomination. Warren was among them. Merkley was another. Sheldon Whitehouse was a third who said they're not going to vote for Powell. But those are probably counteracted by getting the Republican votes on board. So the president does not have to use a whole lot of his uh, political capital in order to get the Fed chair through the Senate. Stephen Leisman, senior economics reporter at CNBC. Thanks. Tennis Chinese star who vanished after criticizing a leader of China's Communist Party has reappeared, uh, kind of.
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. After Chinese tennis star Peng Shui accused China's former vice premier of sexually assaulting her, she quickly vanished from public eye. Her social media accounts scrubbed, appearances canceled, and then for weeks, nothing was heard from her. Concerns about her safety leading to increasing chatter about boycotts for the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. Well, Peng is back in public sight, kind of. Several Chinese state media sources posted pictures and video of Peng seeming to go about her daily life in Beijing. And today she was reportedly on a video conference call with IOC leadership. Now, we have two people here to talk with us about this still developing story. Matt Futterman covers sports for The New York Times. And Maya Wang is the senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Uh, Matt Futterman, let's begin with you. Uh, These appearances are Uh, both audio and and visual, uh, are people still incredulous about her situation? I think people are sort of relieved that she's alive and visible. Uh, That brings some sense of relief and seemingly safe to a degree. But I think there's still a lot of concerns uh, about just how free she is, how whether she can speak freely, whether she can move freely. Uh, because I, you know none of that really gets discussed in any of the appearances, the ones and most of them she's not speaking in, and so uh, I think there's just still a lot of questions about that. What is the IOC saying about this call? Because there wasn't much in there that that explored any of this either. So if China's hoping by you know getting that to happen, this is going to go away, I think it's just going to lead to more questions. So that's not going to work. Yeah, I think the IOC's position is, well, look, you know, we're we're this intermediary between uh, different countries that have great disagreements about how free people should actually be. And, um, you know, so they they think that they've sort of done this great piece of quiet diplomacy, establishing her safety. Uh, She's a three time Olympian. But you know, there's there's a lot more that a lot of people, particularly the Women's Tennis Association, uh, the Women's Professional Tennis Tour, has been trying to establish, and they still haven't spoken with her, as far as I know, uh, and haven't been able to reach her through any number of ways that they've been able to reach her in the past. Maya Wang, what do you think the end game for the Chinese is here? Well, I think for the Chinese government, they just want the issue to go away, that uh, people no longer ask any questions about whether or not her rape allegations uh, were true. Um, And and, uh, for that to go away as soon as possible, especially before the Olympics. Do you think it's going to go away? I mean, we're talking about it, and so is the cable networks and the newspapers. Well, I think it depends on how the Chinese government is going to respond to um, continued concerns about Japan's safety um, in the media. And as you can see, the Chinese government has uh, become quite sophisticated in these kind of proof of life videos uh, that they are showing to the world. Matt, uh, from from the point of view of of uh, I, I guess the the Western uh, media, uh, this is a fairly significant story, but it's being fueled, I suppose, because it's coming 
against this backdrop of other things that are happening in China, right? I mean, everything from China's, you know, uh, more sort of belligerent tone in the South China Sea to to uh, the elevation of its president for what seems to be uh, uh, poisoning him for a uh, indefinite life term, perhaps, running the country. Is that the reason or is it just enough of a story because of her? I think it would be just enough of a story because of her, but you know, it's it's one more thing uh, that the Chinese have done. I mean, you, you didn't mention, you know, putting down pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, uh, treatment of the Uyghurs. I mean, all of this stuff is, you know, very troubling to a lot of people outside of China. Probably a lot of people in China. I don't know. I've actually never been to China. I'm not a China expert, um, but. I know it's troubling to people in the Olympic community because this is where they're bringing the Olympics in February. And, you know, this is the the, the original sin or original sin, but the early sin of the Olympics, which they really never lived down, is coddling Hitler back in 1936. And um, it's they are going to have to explain why what they're doing in February is is different. Maya, if the IOC thinks they're doing, you know, quiet diplomacy, I mean, do you think that's actually what they're doing? Or have they now inserted themselves into this and it's, you know, helping Beijing do what they want to do and present what they want to present? I think it's the latter. Um, So far, what is happening is that um, Pang Shui's story is a state controlled one after she has made the allegation that attracted all the attention. Um, the only outlets that have been releasing videos and photos of her are have essentially been state-controlled media. Um, so it really begs the question of why the IOC appears to be participating in um, such a state-controlled um, narrative, um, and especially to the IOC's kind of purported uh, commitment uh, to human rights uh, during these kind of hosting of the Olympic Games. Well, Matt, can you hazard a, an answer to uh, Maya's uh, sort of rhetorical question? Why is the IOC participating? Well, there's a lot of money at stake. I think that's probably the bottom line. Uh, they've made this long commitment seven years ago to hold the Olympics in Beijing. The last thing they'd want to do is to have something get in the way of that. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people would like the IOC to stand for certain things. But, you know, at the end of the day, the IOC is a is it, on the one hand, it, it says it's a peace movement, but it's really a very, very large business. Um, and they don't they, they don't cancel Olympic Games. It's just not something that that's happened. They, they held an Olympic Games in Tokyo when 85 percent of the country did not want the Olympic Games to be there this summer. And, you know, that was because they really couldn't afford to not hold the Olympic Games. Do you think we end up viewing them like that, you know, non-governmental organization? Because the Olympics, they, they feel special and everybody comes together. But really, I mean, to your point, at the end of the day, they're more like, you know, the NBA or something. It is a business. It's way north of, what, 80% or 90% or something. The, the money, it's, it's all sponsorships that they sell for the games when they put them on. Well, it's mainly media media contracts. Is is, is it, it, you know, television rights is the is is a big uh, revenue generator for them. And yes, I think I think they are a bit. They are you know at, they are a business that is their main priority is keep, keeping this business going. They have an incredibly valuable trademark in the Olympic rings and what it supposedly stands for. And I think you know what 
you know, people have to do and what people will do is, you know, judge them by their actions. Matt Futterman there covers sports for The New York Times and Maya Wang, senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch. Thanks to you both. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.